Chapter Eight of Moments with Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Life on the Mississippi, eighteen seventy four to eighteen seventy five. The Permanent Ambition. When I was a boy, there was but one permanent ambition among my comrades in our village on the west bank of the Mississippi River. That was to be a steamboatman. We had transient ambitions of other sorts, but they were only transient. When a circus came and went, it left us all burning to become clowns. The first negro minstrel show that ever came to our section left us all suffering to try that kind of life. Now and then we had a hope that, if we lived and were good, God would permit us to be pirates. These ambitions faded out, each in its turn. But the ambition to be a steamboatman always remained. My father was a justice of the peace, and I supposed he possessed the power of life and death over all men, and could hang anybody that offended him. This was distinction enough for me as a general thing, but the desire to be a steamboatman kept intruding nevertheless. I first wanted to be a cabin boy, so that I could come out with a white apron on and shake a tablecloth over the side, where all my old comrades could see me. Later I thought I would rather be the deckhand, who stood on the end of the stage plank, with the coil of rope in his hand, because he was particularly conspicuous. But these were only daydreams. They were too heavenly to be contemplated as real possibilities. By and by one of our boys went away. He was not heard of for a long time. At last he turned up as apprentice engineer, or striker, on a steamboat. This thing shook the bottom out of all my Sunday school teachings. That boy had been notoriously worldly, and I just the reverse. Yet he was exalted to this eminence, and I left in obscurity and misery. This creature's career could produce but one result, and it speedily followed. Boy after boy managed to get on the river. The minister's son became an engineer, the doctor's and the postmaster's sons became mud clerks, the wholesale liquor-dealer's son became a barkeeper on a boat. Four sons of the chief merchant, and two sons of the county judge, became pilots. Pilot was the grandest position of all. The pilot, even in those days of trivial wages, had a princely salary, from a hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty dollars a month, and no board to pay. Two months of his wages would pay a preacher's salary for a year. Now some of us were left disconsolate. We could not get on the river. At least our parents would not let us. So, by and by, I ran away. I said I would never come home again till I was a pilot and could come in glory. First Lessons in Piloting The boat backed out from New Orleans at four in the afternoon, and it was our watch until eight. Mr. Bixby, my chief, straightened her up, ploughed her along past the sterns of the other boats that lay at the levee, and then said, Here, take her. Shave those steamboats as close as you'd peel an apple. I took the wheel, and my heartbeat fluttered up into the hundreds, for it seemed to me that we were about to scrape the side of every ship in the line. We were so close. I held my breath and began to claw the boat away from the danger, and I had my own opinion of the pilot who had known no better than to get us into such peril, but I was too wise to express it. 
In half a minute I had a wide margin of safety intervening between the Paul Jones and the ships, and within ten seconds more I was set aside in disgrace, and Mr. Bixby was going into danger again and flaying me alive with abuse of my cowardice. I was stung, but I was obliged to admire the easy confidence with which my chief loafed from side to side of his wheel, and trimmed the ship so closely that disaster seemed ceaselessly imminent. When he had cooled a little, he told me that the easy water was close ashore, and the current outside, and therefore we must hug the bank, upstream, to get the benefit of the former, and stay well out, downstream, to take advantage of the latter. In my own mind I resolved to be a downstream pilot, and leave the upstreaming to people dead to prudence. Now and then Mr. Bixby called my attention to certain things. Said he, This is Six Mile Point. I assented. It was pleasant enough information, but I could not see the bearing of it. I was not conscious that it was a matter of any interest to me. Another time he said, This is Nine Mile Point. Later he said, This is Twelve Mile Point. They were all about level with the water's edge. They all looked about alike to me they were monotonously unpicturesque. I hoped Mr. Bixby would change the subject. But no, he would crowd up around a point, hugging the shore with affection, and then say, The slack water ends here, abreast this bunch of china trees. Now we cross over. So he crossed over. He gave me the wheel once or twice, but I had no luck. I either came near chipping off the edge of a sugar plantation, or I yawed too far from shore, and so dropped back into disgrace again and got abused. The watch was ended at last, and we took supper and went to bed. At midnight the glare of a lantern shone in my eyes, and the night watchman said, Come, turn out. And then he left. I could not understand this extraordinary procedure, so I presently gave up trying to, and dozed off to sleep. Pretty soon the watchman was back again, and this time he was gruff. I was annoyed. I said, "'What do you want to come bothering around here in the middle of the night for? Now as like as not I'll not get to sleep again tonight.' The watchman said, "'Well, if this ain't good, I'm blessed.' The off-watch was just turning in, and I heard some brutal laughter from them, and such remarks as, "'Hello, watchman!' Ain't the new club turned out yet? He's delicate, likely. Give him some sugar in a rag, and send for the chambermaid to sing Rockabye Baby to him. Mr. Bixby appeared on the scene. Something like a minute later, I was climbing the pilot-house steps, with some of my clothes on and the rest in my arms. Mr. Bixby was close behind, commenting. Here was something fresh, this thing of getting up in the middle of the night to go to work. It was a detail in piloting that had never occurred to me at all. I knew that boats ran all night, but somehow I had never happened to reflect that somebody had to get up out of a warm bed to run them. I began to fear that piloting was not quite so romantic as I had imagined it was. There was something very real and work-like about this new phase of it. It was a rather dingy night, although a fair number of stars were out. The big mate was at the wheel, and he had the old tub pointed at a star, and was holding her straight up the middle of the river. 
The shores on either hand were not much more than half a mile apart, but they seemed wonderfully far away, and ever so vague and indistinct. The mate said, "'We've got to land at Jones' plantation, sir.' The vengeful spirit in me exulted. I said to myself, "'I wish you joy of your job, Mr. Bixby. You'll have a good time finding Mr. Jones's plantation such a night as this, and I hope you never will find it as long as you live.' Mr. Bixby said to the mate, "'Upper end of the plantation or the lower?' "'Upper.' "'I can't do it. The stumps there are out of the water at this stage. It's no great distance to the lower, and you'll have to get along with that.' "'All right, sir. If Jones don't like it, he'll have to lump it, I reckon.' And then the mate left. My exultation began to cool, and my wonder to come up. Here was a man who not only proposed to find this plantation on such a night, but to find either end of it you preferred. I dreadfully wanted to ask a question, but I was carrying about as many short answers as my cargo room would admit of, so I held my peace. All I desired to ask Mr. Bixby was the simple question whether he was ass enough to really imagine he was going to find that plantation on a night when all plantations were exactly alike and all the same colour. But I held in. I used to have fine inspirations of prudence in those days. Mr. Bixby made for the shore and soon was scraping it, just the same as if it had been daylight, and not only that, but singing, Father in heaven, the day is declining, etc. It seemed to me that I had put my life into the keeping of a peculiarly reckless outcast. Presently he turned on me and said, What's the name of the first point above New Orleans? I was gratified to be able to answer promptly, and I did. I said I don't know. Don't know? This manner jolted me. I was down at the foot again in a moment, but I had to say just what I had said before. Well, you're a smart one, said Mr. Bixby. What's the name of the next point? Once more I didn't know. Well, this beats anything. Tell me the name of any point or place I told you. I studied a while and decided that I couldn't. Look here, what do you start out from above Twelve Mile Point to cross over? I, I don't know. You, you don't know? Mimicking my drawling manner of speech. What do you know? I, I, nothing for certain. By the great Caesar's ghost, I believe you. You're the stupidest dunderhead I ever saw or ever heard of. So help me, Moses. The idea of you being a pilot, you. Why, you don't know enough to pilot a cow down a lane. Oh, but his wrath was up. He was a nervous man, and he shuffled from one side of his wheel to the other, as if the floor was hot. He would boil a while to himself, and then overflow, and scald me again. Look here. What do you suppose I told you the names of those points for? I tremblingly considered a moment, and the devil of temptation provoked me to say, Well, to, to be entertaining, I thought. This was a red flag to the bull. He raged and stormed so, he was crossing the river at the time, that I judge it made him blind, because he ran over the steering gear of a trading scow. Of course, the traders sent up a volley of red-hot profanity. Never was a man so grateful as Mr. Bixby was. 
because he was brimful, and here were subjects who could talk back. He threw open a window, thrust his head out, and such an eruption followed as I never had heard before. The fainter and farther away the scowman's curses drifted, the higher Mr. Bixby lifted his voice, and the weightier his adjectives grew. When he closed the window he was empty. You could have drawn a seine through his system, and not caught curses enough to disturb your mother with. Presently he said to me in the gentlest way, My boy, you must get a little memorandum book, and every time I tell you a thing, put it down right away. There's only one way to be a pilot, and that is to get this entire river by heart. You have to know it just like A, B, C. This was a dismal revelation to me, for my memory was never loaded with anything but blank cartridges. However, I did not feel discouraged long. I judged that it was best to make allowances, for doubtless Mr. Bixby was stretching. Presently he pulled a rope and struck a few strokes on the big bell. The stars were all gone now, and the night was as black as ink. I could hear the wheels churn along the bank but I was not entirely certain that I could see the shore. The voice of the invisible watchman called up from the hurricane deck. "'What's this, sir?' "'Jones's Plantation.' I said to myself, "'I wish that I might venture to offer a small bet that it isn't.' But I did not chirp. I only waited to see. Mr. Bixby handled the engine-bells, and in due time the boat's nose came to the land, a torch glowed from the forecastle. A man skipped ashore. A darkey's voice on the bank said, "'Give me the carpet-bag, Mass Jones.' And the next moment we were standing up the river again, all serene. I reflected deeply a while, and then said, but not aloud, "'Well, the finding of that plantation was the luckiest accident that ever happened, but it couldn't happen again in a hundred years.' PERPLEXING LESSONS at the end of what seemed a tedious while, I had managed to pack my head full of islands, towns, bars, points, and bends, and a curiously inanimate mass of lumber it was, too. However, inasmuch as I could shut my eyes and reel off a good long string of these names, without leaving out more than ten miles of river in every fifty, I began to feel that I could take a boat down to New Orleans if I could make her skip those little gaps but of course my complacency could hardly get start enough to lift my nose a trifle into the air before Mr. Bixby would think of something to fetch it down again. One day he turned on me suddenly with this settler. What is the shape of Walnut Bend? He might as well have asked me my grandmother's opinion of protoplasm. I reflected respectfully, and then said I didn't know it had any particular shape my gunpowdery chief went off with a bang, of course, and then went on loading and firing until he was out of adjectives. I had learned long ago that he only carried just so many rounds of ammunition, and was sure to subside into a very placable and even remorseful old smooth-bore as soon as they were all gone. That word old is merely affectionate. He was not more than thirty-four. I waited. By and by he said, My boy, you've got to know the shape of the river perfectly. It is all there is left to steer by on a very dark night. Everything else is blotted out and gone. But, mind you, it hasn't the same shape in the night that it has in the daytime. How on earth am I ever going to learn it, then? 
How do you follow a hall at home in the dark? Because you know the shape of it. You can't see it. Do you mean to say that I've got to know all the million trifling variations of shape in the banks of this interminable river, as well as I know the shape of the front hall at home? On my honour, you've got to know them better than any man ever did know the shapes of the halls in his own house. I wish I was dead. Now, I don't want to discourage you, but... Well, pile it on me. I might as well have it now as another time. You see, this has got to be learned. There isn't any getting around it. A clear starlight night throws such heavy shadows that, if you didn't know the shape of a shore perfectly, you would claw away from every bunch of timber, because you would take the black shadow of it for a solid cape. And you see you would be getting scared to death every fifteen minutes by the watch. You would be fifty yards from shore all the time, when you ought to be within fifty feet of it. You can't see a snag in one of those shadows, but you know exactly where it is, and the shape of the river tells you when you are coming to it. Then there's your pitch-dark night. The river is a very different shape on a pitch-dark night from what it is on a starlit night. All shores seem to be straight lines, then, and mighty dim ones, too. And you'd run them for straight lines, only you know better. You boldly drive your boat right into what seems to be a solid straight wall you knowing very well that in reality there is a curve there, and that wall falls back and makes way for you. Then there's your grey mist. You take a night where there's one of these grisly, drizzly, grey mists, and then there isn't any particular shape to a shore. A grey mist would tangle the head of the oldest man that ever lived. Well then, different kinds of moonlight change the shape of the river in different ways. You see... Oh, don't say any more, please. Have I got to learn the shape of the river according to all these five hundred thousand different ways? If I tried to carry all that cargo in my head, it would make me stoop-shouldered. No, you only learn the shape of the river, and you learn it with such absolute certainty that you can always steer by the shape that's in your head, and never the one that's before your eyes. Very well, I'll try it, but... After I have learned it, can I depend on it? Will it keep the same form and not go fooling around? Before Mr. Bixby could answer, Mr. W. came in to take the watch, and he said, Bixby, you'll have to look out for President's Island, and all that country clear way up above the old hen and chickens. The banks are caving and the shape of the shore, changing like everything. Why, you wouldn't know the point above forty. You can go inside the old sycamore snag now. So that question was answered. Here were leagues of shore changing shape. My spirits were down in the mud again. Two things seemed pretty apparent to me. One was that in order to be a pilot, a man has got to learn more than any one man ought to be allowed to know. And the other was that he must learn it all over again, in a different way, every twenty-four hours. That night we had the watch until twelve. Now it was an ancient river custom for the two pilots to chat a bit when the watch changed. While the relieving pilot put on his gloves and lit his cigar, his partner, the retiring pilot, would say something like this. I judge the upper bar is making down a little at Hales Point, had quarter twain with the lower head and mark twain with the other. Yes, I thought it was making down a little last trip. Meet any boats? 
met one abreast the head of twenty-one, but she was away over hugging the bar, and I couldn't make her out entirely. I took her for the sunny south, hadn't any skylight forward of the chimneys. And so on. And as the relieving pilot took the wheel, his partner would mention that we were in such and such a bend, and say we were abreast of such a man's woodyard or plantation. This was courtesy. I supposed it was necessity. But Mr. W. came on watch full twelve minutes late on this particular night, a tremendous breach of etiquette. In fact, it is the unpardonable sin among pilots. So Mr. Bixby gave him no greeting whatever, but simply surrendered the wheel and marched out of the pilot-house without a word. I was appalled. It was a villainous night for blackness. We were in a particularly wide and blind part of the river where there was no shape or substance to anything and it seemed incredible that Mr. Bixby should have left that poor fellow to kill the boat, trying to find out where he was. But I resolved that I would stand by him anyway. He should find that he was not wholly friendless. So I stood around, and waited to be asked where we were. But Mr. W. plunged on serenely, through the solid firmament of black cats that stood for an atmosphere, and never opened his mouth. He is a proud devil, thought I. Here is a limb of Satan that would rather send us all to destruction than put himself under obligations to me, because I am not yet one of the salt of the earth, and privileged to snub captains and lord it over everything dead and alive in the steamboat. I presently climbed up on the bench. I did not think it was safe to go to sleep while this lunatic was on watch. However, I must have gone to sleep in the course of time, because the next thing I was aware of was the fact that day was breaking, Mr. W. gone, and Mr. Bixby at the wheel again. So it was four o'clock and all well, but me. I felt like a skinful of dry bones, and all of them trying to ache at once. Mr. Bixby asked me what I had stayed up there for. I confessed that it was to do Mr. W. a benevolence, tell him where he was. It took five minutes for the entire preposterousness of the thing to filter into Mr. Bixby's system, and then I judged it filled him nearly up to the chin, because he paid me a compliment, and not much of a one either. He said, Well, taking you by and large, you seem to be more different kinds of an ass than any creature I ever saw before. What did you suppose he wanted to know for? I said I thought it might be a convenience to him. Convenience? Damnation! Didn't I tell you that a man's got to know the river in the night the same as he'd know his front hall? Well, I can follow the front hall in the dark if I know it is the front hall. But suppose you set me down in the middle of it in the dark and did not tell me which hall it is. How am I to know? Well, you've got to on the river. All right. Then I'm glad I never said anything to Mr. W. I should say so. Why, he'd have slammed you through the window, and utterly ruined a hundred dollars' worth of window-sash and stuff. I was glad this damage had been saved, for it would have made me unpopular with the owners. They always hated anybody who had the name of being careless and injuring things. I went to work now to learn the shape of the river and of all the eluding and ungraspable objects that ever I tried to get mind or hands on. That was the chief. I would fasten my eyes upon a sharp wooded point that projected far into the river, some miles ahead of me, and go laboriously photographing its shape into my brain, 
and just as I was beginning to succeed to my satisfaction, we would draw up to it, and the exasperating thing would begin to melt away and fold back into the bank. If there had been a conspicuous dead tree standing up in the very point of the cape, I would find that tree inconspicuously merged into the general forest, and occupying the middle of a straight shore when I got abreast of it. No prominent hill would stick to its shape long enough for me to make up my mind what its form really was, but it was as dissolving and changeful as if it had been a mountain of butter in the hottest corner of the tropics. Nothing ever had the same shape when I was coming downstream that it had borne when I went up. I mentioned these little difficulties to Mr. Bixby. He said, That's the very main virtue of the thing. If the shapes didn't change every three seconds, they wouldn't be of any use. Take this place where we are now, for instance. As long as that hill over yonder is only one hill, I can boom right along the way I'm going. But the moment it splits at the top and forms a V, I know I've got to scratch to starboard in a hurry, or I'll bang this boat's brains out against a rock. And then, the moment one of the prongs of the V swings behind the other, I've got to waltz to larboard again, or I'll have a misunderstanding with a snag that would snatch the keelson out of this steamboat as neatly as if it were a sliver in your hand. If that hill didn't change its shape on bad nights, there would be an awful steamboat graveyard around here inside of a year. It was plain that I had got to learn the shape of the river in all the different ways that could be thought of, upside down, wrong end first, inside out, fore and aft, and thwart ships and then know what to do on grey nights when it hadn't any shape at all. So I set about it. In the course of time I began to get the best of this naughty lesson, and my self-complacency moved to the front once more. Mr. Bixby was all fixed, and ready to start it to the rear again. He opened on me in this fashion. How much water did we have in the middle crossing at Hole in the Wall, trip before last? I considered this an outrage. I said, Every trip, up and down, the Leeds men are singing through that tangled place for three-quarters of an hour on a stretch. How do you reckon I can remember such a mess as that? My boy, you've got to remember it. You've got to remember the exact spot and the exact marks the boat lay in when we had the shoalest water, in every one of the five hundred shoal places between St. Louis and New Orleans. And you mustn't get the shoal soundings and marks on one trip mixed up with the shoal soundings and marks of another, either, for they're not often twice alike. You must keep them separate. When I came to myself again, I said, When I get so that I can do that, I'll be able to raise the dead, and then I won't have to pilot a steamboat to make a living. I want to retire from this business. I want a slush bucket and a brush. I'm only fit for a roustabout. I haven't got brains enough to be a pilot and if I had, I wouldn't have strength enough to carry them around unless I went on crutches. Now drop that. When I say I'll learn a man the river, I mean it, and you can depend on it. I'll learn him or kill him. A TEST OF COURAGE The growth of courage in the pilot house is steady all the time, but it does not reach a high and satisfactory condition until some time after the young pilot has been standing his own watch alone, and under the staggering weight of all the responsibilities connected with the position. When an apprentice has become pretty thoroughly acquainted with the river, 
he goes clattering along so fearlessly with his steamboat night or day that he presently begins to imagine that it is his courage that animates him but the first time the pilot steps out and leaves him to his own devices he finds out it was the other man's he discovers that the article has been left out of his own cargo altogether the whole river is bristling with exigencies in a moment he is not prepared for them he does not know how to meet them all his knowledge forsakes him and within fifteen minutes he is as white as a sheet and scared almost to death therefore pilots wisely train these cubs by various strategic tricks to look danger in the face a little more calmly a favourite way of theirs is to play a friendly swindle upon the candidate mr bixby served me in this fashion once and for years afterward i used to blush even in my sleep when i thought of it i had become a good steersman so good indeed that i had all the work to do on our watch night and day mr bixby seldom made a suggestion to me all he ever did was to take the wheel on particularly bad nights or in particularly bad crossings land the boat when she needed to be landed play gentlemen of leisure nine-tenths of the watch and collect the wages the lower river was about bank full and if anybody had questioned my ability to run any crossing between cairo and new orleans without help or instruction i should have felt irreparably hurt the idea of being afraid of any crossing in the lot in the daytime was a thing too preposterous for contemplation well one matchless summer's day i was bowling down the bend above island sixty six brimful of self-conceit and carrying my nose as high as a giraffe's when mr bixby said i am going below a while i suppose you know the next crossing this was almost an affront it was about the plainest and simplest crossing in the whole river one couldn't come to any harm whether he ran it right or not and as for depth there never had been any bottom there i knew all this perfectly well know how to run it why i can run it with my eyes shut how much water is there in it well that is an odd question i couldn't get bottom there with a church steeple you think so do you the very tone of the question shook my confidence that was what mr bixby was expecting he left without saying anything more i began to imagine all sorts of things mr bixby unknown to me of course sent somebody down to the forecastle with some mysterious instructions to the leadsman another messenger was sent to whisper among the officers and then mr bixby went into hiding behind a smokestack where he could observe results presently the captain stepped out on the hurricane deck next the chief mate appeared then a clerk every moment or two a straggler was added to my audience and before i got to the head of the island i had fifteen or twenty people assembled down there under my nose i began to wonder what the trouble was as i started across the captain glanced aloft at me and said with a sham uneasiness in his voice where is mr bixby gone below sir but that did the business for me my imagination began to construct dangers out of nothing and they multiplied faster than i could keep the run of them all at once i imagined i saw shoal water ahead 
the wave of coward agony that surged through me then came near dislocating every joint in me all my confidence in that crossing vanished i seized the bell-rope dropped it ashamed seized it again dropped it once more clutched it tremblingly once again and pulled it so feebly that i could hardly hear the stroke myself captain and mate sang out instantly and both together starboard lead there and quick about it this was another shock i began to climb the wheel like a squirrel but i would hardly get the boat started to port before i would see new dangers on that side and away i would spin to the other only to find perils accumulating to starboard and be crazy to get to port again then came the leadsman's sepulchral cry deep four deep four in a bottomless crossing the terror of it took my breath away mark three mark three quarter less three half twain this was frightful i seized the bell-rope and stopped the engines quarter twain quarter twain mark twain i was helpless i did not know what in the world to do i was quaking from head to foot and i could have hung my hat on my eyes they stuck out so far quarter less twain nine and a half we were drawing nine my hands were in a nerveless flutter i could not ring a bell intelligibly with them i flew to the speaking-tube and shouted to the engineer oh ben if you love me back her quick ben oh back the immortal soul out of her i heard the door close gently i looked around and there stood mr bixby smiling a bland sweet smile then the audience on the hurricane deck sent up a thundergust of humiliating laughter i saw it all now and i felt meaner than the meanest man in human history i laid in the lead set the boat in her marks came ahead on the engines and said it was a fine trick to play on an orphan wasn't it i suppose i'll never hear the last of how i was ass enough to heave the lead at the head of sixty-six well no you won't maybe in fact i hope you won't for i want you to learn something by that experience didn't you know there was no bottom in that crossing yes sir i did very well then you shouldn't have allowed me or anybody else to shake your confidence in that knowledge try to remember that and another thing when you get into a dangerous place don't turn coward that isn't going to help matters any it was a good enough lesson but pretty hardly learned yet the hardest part of it was that for months i so often had to hear a phrase which i had conceived a particular distaste for it was oh ben if you love me back her End of chapter eight